on today's episode, Injury Technique Insight for Injury Prevention and Performance with Chris Brammer. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, and smarter runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am the guy to reach out to when you've finally decided enough is enough with your persistent running injuries. I'm a physiotherapist, the owner of the Breakthrough Running Clinic, and your podcast host. I'm excited to bring you today's lesson and to add to your ever-growing running knowledge. Let's work together to overcome your running injuries, getting you to that starting line and finishing strong. So let's take it away. Okay, I first heard about Chris Brammer on um, another podcast, as I seem to always find my guests these days. Um, Chris has an exceptional insight into injury um, prevention and performance when it comes to running technique. He is a physiotherapist, but he's also been a researcher since 2011 and has built um, amazing insight throughout that time. He has had access to top athletes and top um, technology and resources, which he'll discuss in a second. Today, we're going to dive into how running technique can, um, or how what you need to know about running technique, I should say, uh, regarding your injury prevention and performance. There's a lot of misconceptions out there, so Chris does a really good job of debunking a lot of that and giving you a lot of insight um, that a lot of runners don't know and a lot of physios don't know, to be honest. Um, so you're in for a treat today. Before we get started, um, I did mention last episode that uh, it's quite important that you go back to season one and listen to the first 10 episodes especially because <clears throat> this podcast is designed to teach you the universal principles to overcome injuries and episode one to 10, we break down 10 principles that any runner needs to know or should know um, if you want to reduce your risk of injury. And I've had a a good response to that. So um, make your way through those first 10. Um, I want to see uh, the the usual downloads that I get for every new episode. I want to see the first 10 episodes get very close to to that number, uh, which it was doing very well for the first 30 episodes. Um, Now we're getting up to the 60s and people are just finding the podcast and starting and there's a lot of episodes out there not too sure where to start people usually just start with the latest ones and work their way from there um so here's a bit of a reminder that the first season is a crucial one and best to um even listen into the early ones on um season two strength training uh it's it's really essential and ties in really well with what chris discusses today the other thing I will mention is um, I'll keep I'll put a link into the show notes today. Over the last couple of days, I've designed the five-day injury prevention challenge, which you sign up for, uh, enter your email, and then you will receive over the next five days, one email a day going through um, principles and tasks and challenges to um, strengthen your injury prevention intelligence and you walk away from the five-day challenge um, feeling invigorated, feeling like you have control over your running injuries. Uh, We delve into a lot of um, really practical stuff and yeah, hopefully, uh, well, the people that are going through at the moment, 
I've had amazing feedback. They're loving it. They're learning a lot. Um, so if you are interested and you don't follow me on social media, so you don't know what I'm talking about, I will include the link in the show notes. Simply just enter your email and then straight away, automatically you start receiving emails over the next five days. Um, so yeah, that's one other thing I need to talk about. Uh, what else? That's about it. This could have been a very complicated topic. Uh, we could easily dive into the nitty gritty science-based stuff and get quite technical, uh, which most physios are interested in, but we're tailoring for you, which is mainly the recreational runner. So Chris did a fantastic job of keeping everything um, in a level that most recreational runners would understand, and it's just value-packed, so you're going to love it. So without further ado, here is Chris Brammer. Chris, thanks for coming on uh, to the Run Smarter podcast. Uh, glad that you could we could negotiate these time zones and uh, get you on. Can we just start off with you introducing yourself and uh, where you're from and kind of your uh, background in research and your profession? Yeah, of course. So for obviously all of your listeners who, don't, who probably don't know me, uh, my name's Chris Brammer and I am a, um, I'm actually a physiotherapist, but I'm also a researcher in biomechanics and uh, my work is predominantly focused around working with runners from elite levels through all the way to um, recreational levels and people just starting up running for the first time. So I'm based in Manchester in the UK and um, from a physio perspective, uh, as I said, I work with runners, but I also work with and have done for the last, I think, seven years now, worked with British Athletics and Team GB. Um, so that's given me a great opportunity to work with some really fantastic athletes from across the world. And at the same time, I think one of the unique things to what I do as a, as a clinician is where I am, I'm very fortunate that we have full uh, biomechanics setups in clinics. So if you've ever seen those video games created with um, like little reflective markers stuck to people, we have a, a nice indoor lab where we can do that to people to have a look at how uh, you run and try and understand movement patterns and forces that are acting on the body and what that's doing from to a performance and injury perspective. So that's a really unique aspect of what we do sort of clinically um, to be able to look at people's as running. Um, so I, I'd say in summary, you know, the, the thing of my work of what I, I quite like to pride myself on being is being able to combine that, that practical aspect with the underlying research. of Yeah. Great. Mechanics. Sounds like a great opportunity to have access to that sort of technology and it could help enhance your skills as well, just purely because you have access to that technology. Oh yeah. I mean, to, to have it is an absolute luxury. Um, and we were very fortunate that we were um, our center where we work. It's called the Manchester Institute of Health and Performance. If you ever want to have a Google of it, but effectively, I don't know how much you guys know about football or soccer over here, but um, or how much you follow it. But our building was funded by Manchester City Football Club or City Football Group, as they like to be known. So we're at a really real luxury that we have a massive indoor track that's uh, like 80 meters long, force plates through the ground. Um, 3D cameras around the building. Um, so yeah, it gives us a, a great chance to combine the sport that I love with uh, the science, which I also love. Brilliant. And as a researcher, have your topics that you've researched, have you focused or narrowed in on, on any specific topics? Yeah. So my research started, um, I pretty much started doing uh, academic research back in 2011. And 
one of our first areas that we wanted to focus in on was looking at the difference between performance standards in running to try and understand if that they were, if high performance uh, endurance runners move different to those people who are at a lower performance status. And ideally, we wanted to use this information to hopefully inform the way we can advise people on what they, they could do from a technique perspective or from a training perspective to influence that. And then I think from looking at performance, we've then started to move uh, more towards then looking at what causes injury and the biomechanical patterns associated with various different types of injuries like your shin splints, your runner's knee, and then what we can do about that and if we can retrain and teach people to run a little bit different to improve symptoms. So, you know, quite all encompassing from performance now straight through into uh, running related injuries and hopefully applicable to most people's situations. Yeah. And they're, they're two topics that almost every runner wants to, wants to know about. I know uh, with my Facebook group, I have people ask a question before they enter the group. It's like, what do you want to know more about? And I reckon 80% either covers like increasing performance or uh, injury prevention. And so having you on as a guest is, is um, going to be going to be fun to talk about. What I thought we would jump into to start with is like, if you have a runner that comes in for, a running analysis, let's um, probably steer away from like the fancy gadgets and that kind of thing. If you had say a treadmill, some cameras, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. What would uh, any an example, what would an assessment look like? Would you look at strength? Would you look at flexibility and then jump them on a treadmill? Or what exactly would that look like? Okay. So on all of my assessments, um, so we do loads of different assessments. So we go from the real fancy stuff to even doing like remote stuff where people can just send us videos of them running. And effectively, all our assessments will start with a sit-down conversation with um, the individual runner to try and get a, a, and paint a picture of their routine, um, what they do on a day-to-day life basis so I can understand the social context. Of, of how you're trying to combine training with work, injury histories, um, and even how you structure your training. And we use this as an opportunity to try and, so, so for me, if I take a step back a little bit, running related injuries and running performance, they're influenced by a, a massive number of factors, not just the way people run and not just our running biomechanics. So I like to build a picture through having an in-depth conversation about you know, everyone's lifestyle to try and understand where all of these different contributors to their performance are. So we can hopefully make more holistic advice. So sometimes someone might come to me and ask me for performance advice about their biomechanics, but in reality, their training week might be structured of just lots of uh, long, slow, easy runs without any specific lactate threshold runs um, or specific VO2 sessions. So, you know, I like to build a picture first to understand what can contribute that before we look at biomechanics. And then, you know, going on from that, what we do is jump, I like to jump them on the treadmill first. So before I even look at someone clinically and do any sort of strength assessments, I like to see people run and get a view of different angles. So we'd literally look at side on from both the right and left and then rear on. They're my three important views in terms of I like to see the, the, the movement patterns that are occurring in both of them frames. And only after that would I start to then delve into asking the questions of, okay, um, why are we moving in this way? Um, what do we need to look at from a, 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 an assessment and a strength-based um, perspective? 
And the reason I, I do it this way is because there's so many different contributors from strength and range of movement and anatomy that can influence how we run and give us all our, you know, little unique intricacies that, you know, I have to first, I feel like I have to first form that picture of, of how you're running, whether or not certain things could be a problem or could be improved. And then I delve into understanding why are those things happening. And would you, um, would you then do any further tests after the runner, um, after you assess them running? Uh, yeah. So a, a nice example that I'd use is, um, is say for example, somebody who's got running with what I call like a crouched running gait. So it, where they, they're running with a, an overstride, they're not really creating any, um, momentum into the air so you see these runners that they, they look like they sat down when they're running and i call that a crouched running gait now one of the things we found clinically is that that can be related to a person's way of trying to use muscle forces throughout the body and in particular um i then would like to assess okay how strong are they around the hip or how strong are they around the foot and ankle complex because with these type of runners we often find around that calf complex uh, around that you know, lower limb musculature, they often demonstrate um, strength deficits, which mean that they then go into a running position or, or, or run with a gait that's trying to recruit different muscles and avoid the ankle. So that, that's so someone with a crouch running gait for me, I'd then look at, okay, how many calf raises can you do to failure? And how much force can we create? Just using a simple test like calf raise on a leg press um, to try and then understand is there a particular influence to that movement pattern that we might be able to either not even necessarily change directly, but also give someone some advice on, you know, strength and conditioning routines and things that they could in incorporate. And yeah. yeah. And the types of tests that we use will just vary completely. Again, if someone's uh, hip cuts in across the midline, we might look at the strength around the outside of the hip. If their trunk is rotating, um, and they're rotating their chest left to right excessively. We might use some tests to look at um, core muscle strength. Um, you know, various tests depending on what we see. Cool, I love that. It's it's like you're solving a puzzle, and what you're trying to do is uncover just like more pieces as you try and solve that puzzle. Which which is what I really love. Why you start with the sit down conversation and you go through their routine, you go through their history, their injury history, and um, just delve into them as a person. And then your next step is getting them on the treadmill because you could be wasting a fair bit of time doing like strength tests and length tests and things. Um, if it doesn't influence yeah. their running because it might not directly reflect, like you might have someone who has one ankle slightly stiffer than the other, but then you get them on the treadmill and they're biomechanically like equal and you, it's kind of just like a waste of a test. So the, the method that you go with and the order that you go with makes a whole lot of sense because then you're analyzing them as a runner to start with and then saying, okay, why are they moving that way? And then you'll follow up with um, the tests that might be reflective of that just to uncover more of those puzzle pieces. That's really cool. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the puzzle concept is a, is a really big important point for people to remember running performance and running injuries are like effectively this jigsaw puzzle with multiple different components. And, uh, you know, I think it's too easy for us to get bogged down and think specific things like a restricted ankle is important when actually that might not be impacting on that puzzle. 
So really, I like to try and look at this picture of where I'm trying to get a person to and then assess where all the different pieces are from a nutrition perspective, a strength perspective, a biomechanics perspective. Um, cool. I think it's a runner to remember that really. And if you do have a runner, if you're like looking at their videos and you're analyzing this runner, um, is there anything, any like big rocks that you're looking for rather than just like really small, um, really small pebbles? Is there like some overarching metrics that you might uh, specifically hone in on? Yeah. So I go through almost like a structured assessment process of I'll, uh, I'll look at set key for key different biomechanics, which I'll, I'll explain to you which ones I look for um, before I even go to any of these subtle intricacies. Um, because I think there are key things that can, and we know from science, have an impact upon performance and can influence injury. And then there are other things where we, I, I feel like we just stare at the picture too much that we start to, to pick out pieces of the picture that don't necessarily relate to injury or performance. And the, the, the trick is making sure we stick to the obvious and don't go down the road of these subtle intricacies that actually, that, you know, that they're so fine and so minute that they might not have an impact upon performance or injury. So the way in which I like to start is, uh, is get a simple side on view of someone running. And, you know, you could call me a reductionist physio or a cliche physio, but where I like to start looking is around the pelvis and the spine. Um, and in particular, what I'd look for is whether or not someone's got ex excessive pelvis rotation. So you, you can sort of see from side on that they might, as they run along, be really like twisting and spinning the pelvis and trunk as they move forward. And why I like to look at this is because often this twist and, and rotation can be a sign of somebody who's excessively breaking as they hit the ground. So if, if they land with a really stiff lower leg and break, one of the first points where that might manifest is in this pelvis then spinning on top of that leg. So, you know, if I see that with someone, I might start thinking, okay, is there something that's contributing to them breaking that I can look at further down? Or if there's not, then it might give me a sign of, okay, maybe we've got some deficits around their ability to control rotational movements as they run. So it informs what I do um, on, the, on the subsequent assessment. And then from a trunk perspective, now, trunk is, uh, is, a, is a really interesting one for me, and it's one that I've had some good effects with um, adapting and changing with people on occasions. And the way I think of like your trunk or your chest movements is, is effectively, it's like a Goldilocks effect where we're looking for the just, just the right amount of movement. Now, if you have somebody who leans really far forward when they, when they run, um, or we call that an excessive forward lean, what can happen is it can shift your mass too far ahead of your body. And as a result, I mean, if you stand up and try it yourself, you, what you'll want is you'll almost feel this sensation that you want to fall forward. Now, if too much of that is occurring every time you run, you're either going to fall flat on your face, you, you're going to keep speeding up indefinitely, or the most common thing of what we do is we then reach our leg out and slam the brakes on to try and catch ourselves and prevent ourselves from falling. So, this forward lean has an impact on causing us to break more. Alternatively, what we have is a lot of people think that they should be going out and running really upright and nice and tall um, because, you know, that's what they told elite runners do, you know, and in some respects, some of my research, I think has contributed to saying um, elite runners mun run more upright, but actually the reality is they still have a slight forward lean. 
if you are too upright and you lift that chest and try and run too tall when you run, what you do is you, you reduce the ability to actually use the hip muscles or the glute muscles to help absorb and push yourself forward. And all you then do is shift the forces down to the knee and ankle. So for me, you know, you've got this Goldilocks effect of getting the right amount of trunk lean to avoid falling over and breaking or to avoid the fact that I might then overload the knee and ankle. So like I'd always say to people, it's, it's feeling like you have a subtle drift in your chest forward and you're almost trying to carry your, your chest forward as you run. Um, you know, that's what I'd like to look for at trunk. And then the other real main obvious ones are where is that foot landing in, in relation to your center of mass? So have we got somebody who's got a, a huge overstride where that foot is really far out in front of them? Um, you know, that for me is one of the, the, the big things and the nice things to change about people because we know this overstride is linked to greater breaking. And the only way to, to compensate for the potentially greater breaking forces on an overstride is to then, you know, sink and really have to bend through your knee, which would lead to, you know, an opposite effect of then overloading the knee. So trunk and pelvis position of the first ones and then looking at that overstride and where that foot is in relation to your center of mass. Because I believe that if you get it right, the, the lower leg, that should really be viewed as our uh, suspension spring as we run. If, you know, if it's too much of an overstride, you've not got enough suspension in the system, um, and, uh, you know, as a consequence to, to deal with the breaking, some people can then increase that suspension and sink too much as they run, which overloads muscle systems. Okay. So those are the two obvious in there. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. And in terms of like cadence, would you um, assess that as like high on the priority list or is that fairly low? So cadence is, the, there's this mythical number of 180 that's like passed around. Of We should all be trying to attain for a, a 180 uh, steps per minute. Now, the, the problem with this is that some people, if, you, if you're really tall um, or you're really small, you might either take less steps or more steps. So the 180 doesn't apply to everyone. It's kind of on an individual basis as, as to whether or not it applies. But having said that, when we do look at certain biomechanics, often we can, by changing somebody's cadence, adjust many of these biomechanical patterns that can cause injury so um it's one thing i look at a bit further down the line once i've established if we need to change something and if you if we feel like you don't need to change anything or there's nothing there that could be improved i probably wouldn't bother with the cadence because simply aiming for 180 steps per minute without having any sort of biomechanical error should we say um, what that might do is just cause you to waste more energy by then spinning your legs over too much. So I think the first approach would be, is this something we need to change? And second approach would be, could we look at adjusting the cadence for that? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And um, when I first graduated, they did say magic numbers, 180, but 
we now know that it's kind of like a, a general range and that range is different for every individual. And um, I do like to say that cadence can be a huge game changer for someone, especially if their cadence is really, really low. Um, but for the majority of people, they've kind of self-optimized and hit a, a nice sweet spot anyway. Um, and like you said, we, we don't need to change it unless we need to change something. And for a lot of runners, um, we could do the assessment and realize that nothing does need to be changed. Yeah. I think, the, you know, there was a, something to really hit that home is there was a really good study that came out um, quite a few years ago now, but that what they looked at was people's optimal step rate range. And they checked this by looking at their running um, economy and how many steps per minute they were taking and adjusted the step rate. And effectively what these people found was there's like this sweet spot, whereas there was just, you know, and a lot of people were running close to that sweet spot already in terms of the most economical step rate for them. And if they adjusted that or changed the step rate too much, it, all of a sudden it just made the people's running like uneconomical. So basically, you know, the, the message there is if you mess around with something like step rate and you don't need to, um, you could potentially worsen your performance. Yeah. I did have a, um, a listener, Andre, who was um, talking about, he wanted to increase his cadence um, and he's a, a very experienced runner, but he wanted to raise his cadence from 170 to 185 um, at a, a five minute pace. Um, and he wanted to know if there was any particular strategies that you would advise. But from what you're saying, it sounds like um, it would just depend on the individual and wouldn't um, necessarily enhance performance. Yeah, definitely. I, you've got to be very careful because if you like the mechanical patterns that I talk about in terms of the overstride and the position of the foot related to your center of mass, if that's already what we'd say in the, in the optimized realm, all that's going to happen is if you increase the step rate further, you're going to cost yourself more energy because you've got to spin your legs over faster like Roadrunner. Um, so I'd first of all, look at, is there something that you can do from a mechanical perspective or does anything need changing from a mechanical perspective before you think of changing step rate? But if you did want to go ahead and somebody wanted to go and have a, have a try at, at changing the step rate, um, what I'd probably say is monitor your heart rate data to see if it changes your heart rate for a given running pace. Cause if it makes it go up, that's like a, a crude way of suggesting that it might have a negative impact on your performance because you're working harder. And then second of all, you know, the practical ability to actually do that is, you know, I generally would start people nice and easy using a audible metronome. So you can download little metronome apps or one of the one that I use is called Metro timer. I think it's free to download and you can set that to the new beat. So often I would let people, um, and I think our infield way of training someone was to give them this metronome let them listen to it while they're running for the first five minutes and try and match their feet to that beat. And then, cause it can be really annoying and actually people pick up these skills quite quickly is you can shut that beat off and then try and just keep the, the feel of that type of running going and, and only reintroduce it. If you feel like you're losing that ability to, to, to do that step rate. I love that. And it, while we're on that topic is, can you think of any other, um, devices or any other like assessment tools that a recreational runner could use on themselves because like if they don't have a um, a health professional like filming them and analyzing them and slow mowing everything or having reflectors on them 
Um, is there anything they can do at home with a phone or with something quite basic to assess themselves? Any key metrics? Um, yeah. So there's quite a few different things that you could do. Um, you can, you could do like a self gait analysis or self like, uh, view of yourself running and uh, with our remote assessments that's one of the things we ask people to do is record the videos in that way and simply just like propping your phone up on a on a tripod or you know a, a nice little method for me is like you stick your phone in, in a shoe so it, it forms a little uh, running related tripod and then you can record like slow-mo videos of yourself running side on or running away or towards the camera so you can have a bit of a look of what you're doing biomechanically there um but in terms of other metrics as well is there's a lot of you know a lot of the watches have various different uh, ability to monitor different aspects of you running and you know some of this data is really accurate um some of it is not so accurate but it's fairly reliable so you can monitor change on that but they have nice little metrics such as looking at your cadence, the watches can will record, uh, they'll look at your ground contact time, which is basically how long you're in contact with the ground. Um, and what you want to see there is as you're getting faster, you want that ground contact time to come down lower. Um, and some of them will also give you balance between the right and left. So how much time you're spending on the right foot relative to the left, which can be a nice sign of um, any sort of injury deficits or unresolved issues that you still have that's causing you to favor one side or be stiffer on one side. Um, and then there are all other metrics. One that I particularly like playing around with at the moment is um, with the Garmin uh, watches. And in particular, if you have their uh, triathlon heart rate monitor, they have something called the vertical ratio that they put on there, which is effectively the relationship or the ratio between how much time you spend in the air and how much ground you cover. So from a performance perspective, what you really want to do is be making sure that the time that you spend in the air is covering the most ground possible um, rather than just bouncing up and down on the spot, which would be a very energy costly. So Garmin have this nice vertical ratio thing on, on, on there that you can look back on. And I quite like that one as a, as a neat little performance indicator at the moment. Great. That's awesome. And if we were to backtrack a little bit, going back to this running assessment, looking at someone on a treadmill, um, we, you mentioned the big things that you look for straight away, which would be like hips, seeing if the hips are stable, looking at their overall posture to see if there's much of a forward lean and then a, um, the forward contact, the initial contact, if it's too far forward of their center of mass, um, if everything's looking quite good, do you ever delve into more of the, the smaller pebbles with the problems? Do you ever look at um, things like ankle alignment or pronation or step width, that kind of stuff? Okay, so there's some small pebbles that we will delve into, but I think there's also quite a lot of myths around these small pebbles. So in particular, foot pronation is a huge one that um, uh, shoe companies accidentally or maybe purposefully uh, contributed to this um, this myth that we think pronation or what people say is pronation is a bad thing and you don't want too much pronation and we should be prescribing certain shoes based on pronation but effectively that's a myth currently there is very limited scientific evidence to suggest foot pronation reduces performance or impacts upon injury 
And in actual fact, your foot muscles, in particular, your, your, you know, the fascial band on the bottom called your plantar fascia, they're, they're very useful at storing and returning energy. So what we know is when a person pronates, that plantar fascia will store energy, which it will then return as you toe off to spring for the next gait cycle. So actually, pronation can be useful in a lot of instances for storing and returning energy as you run. And therefore, if you work on a way of reducing or stopping pronation, you effectively stop the foot from functioning in a way that it's supposed to. So, you know, I will look at that with people, but then we have this conversation where actually, you know, there's no scientific evidence to link this to injury. And you might really um, not want to be delving into trying and, and, and changing that. Um, the, in terms of the small pebbles that I might look at is say, for example, um, we find really subtle changes in, um, someone's like knee positioning or the hip positioning or, or whatever. If we find a small change, I might use that instead of trying to change the way you run, I might from a clinical perspective think, okay, is there a reason why you're moving in this way? So is this some sort of subtle underlying strength deficit? that we haven't um, addressed yet? And could this be contributing to your injury or performance? If it's not contributing to your injury or performance, and I can't think of a plausible way that it, that it would be, I would, I would pretty much ignore that as a fact because you know, you're changing stuff that's unlikely to have an impact further down the line. Yeah. And I'm glad you touched on that, especially around pronation, because there's a huge misconception out there. And I do think a lot of shoe companies have purposely um, put that in there as like a marketing ploy. And I do think it's very simple for a, um, a shoe company just to measure someone's like, or look at someone's pronation and say, okay, you need this type of shoe. Um, it seems to be a very, a very simplistic model that just isn't backed by evidence whatsoever. So as a runner, if we're looking at say hip, knee, ankle alignment, should it be a goal for them to um, try and achieve more alignment? So what we've got to remember here is that everybody's body is um, shaped subtly different and nobody is perfectly symmetrical. So to aim for the um, perfect symmetry and perfect alignment, we, we might just be, uh, you know, chasing that sort of golden pot at the end of the rainbow, so to speak, the, 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 the thing that ne we're never really going to, to reach and achieve. There are some obvious things that I think we should be looking to, to really try and work on, though. And in particular, some of the biomechanical patterns that are linked to injury in, include this thing called pelvic drop, um, or some runners have, have described it to me as what they call hip dip. And it's effectively where if you imagine your pelvis was a shelving unit and when you land on one leg, the opposite side of that shelving unit drops away. And that is what we call pelvic drop. And then the other aspect is uh, what we call hip adduction. So it's where that knee then cuts across the, the midline of the body and people um, you, you'd almost sometimes you might have experienced this yourselves is where you clip, uh, you clip your knees together. So you're running almost like knock kneed um, with the, the thighs banging together. Those two features, I think from an alignment perspective, the, there is evidence to link them to or associate them to injury and they can increase the stress on the body and the lower limbs. So from my perspective, I like to change that. And the way I change that is either looking at your hip strength 
or maybe using the cadence there as they can be sort of good interventions to hopefully try and improve them sort of areas. But you've got to take it into perspective of how much running you're actually doing and whether or not it is a risk factor um, for you. Because if you don't do very much running, it probably doesn't really matter in the way that you run and how your technique is at that moment in time, because the stress you're applying to your body might not be big enough to contribute to injury. However, I would say like, you know, as, as we start to push ourselves to higher demand training, those of, from an alignment perspective, the pelvis and hip are the one, two things that I'd start to look at. Yeah, cool. And it's nice how you start with that sit down conversation, like you said, because they could have a huge spike in training load and to all of a sudden have knee pain. And then you have a look at them running on a treadmill and you can see that their hips are dropping or their knees cutting in. And you can be like, oh, this is probably the cause where um, that might not be the case. It might just be a peak in training load. And all we need to do is set all the sensitivity down and get them on a, a better, well-structured running program and not have to change anything about their technique. And they're all better. But if they receive misguided information from like another health professional or a running coach or someone that says, yeah, you're getting this pain because your knee is cutting in and because you've got all these um, malaligned um, joints uh, that could create a lot of fear and create a lot of anxiety for a runner. Would you agree with that? Oh, hundred percent. And that's, that is why I think it's so important to have that conversation. And a really nice example of this is, because I assess biomechanics, a lot of people always think I'm going to give them a biomechanical solution. Um, and not long ago, I had this uh, patient who turned up to me. He had ex started to experience IT band syndrome and pain around the outside of his knee. And he was adamant that it was his biomechanics. And we sat down and had a conversation. And I was just like, okay, tell me about your normal running routine. What do you do? And this guy, he's, he tells me like, oh, I run three days a week and I have done for the last uh, three years. And I generally would run on a Monday, Wednesday, and a Friday. And I was like, okay, so how did this problem start? He's like, okay, well, we went away on a, on a, on a running holiday um, for a bank holiday weekend. Um, and then I did a six-mile run on the Friday. Then we did 10 miles on the Saturday. Sunday, we did a 12-mile long run. And then on the Monday, when I came to try and do a, an eight miles, I started to notice at the end, my knee was really sore. So I sat there and I was just like, well, hang on a minute. Let's backtrack a minute. I thought you run three days a week normally. Uh, and all of a sudden you've gone on this bank holiday weekend and you've done four days back to back of really high volume running. And you say, Oh yeah. I, you know, I, I didn't think of it like that, but effectively this person, he didn't have a biomechanical problem. It was just that all of that sudden and huge change in what they did from a training perspective that led to normal structures getting overloaded. Um, uh, you know, analogy I use to people is like, you know, you, you don't go from working part-time to, to working seven days a week for 12 months a year, because otherwise <laughs> you'll break down with stress. It's the same from a running perspective. Very true. Um, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this because I'm here to learn as well. Um, I find myself often correcting um, people's narrow step width if they have maybe like a crossover pattern um, when they are running, if they are injured, if they have like ITB friction syndrome or if they have maybe shin splints, something along those lines. Um, would you, if someone is injured with that particular sort of injury, would widening their step width be something that you might try with them? So step width is an interesting one and one that I've played around with for the last few years now. 
now the reason people think step width is important is because there was a couple of biomechanical studies that came out and showed if you change people's step width, so make them run wider or narrower, ideally you don't want to make them run narrower, but if you make them run wider, that it'll offload things like the shin and the IT band. But from my experience with this, this came from two separate studies that were predominantly around biomechanical modeling studies. So basically very complicated mathematical studies, but only looked at healthy people and didn't really trial this out in, in injured subjects. So I, you know, I understand the concept was there and we started to try and use this with some injured runners, but I never really found that it, it got me the, these theoretical gains. I, it didn't really seem to change people's symptoms. And the one thing that, you know, patients reported time and time again is that when you try and make them run with a wider step width, it just feels really weird. And they take that forward just feeling really strange um, time and time again. So I've not really had any success with it. And I don't think there's enough evidence there to uh, show me a way to one, integrate it into practice for all of us. And two, that it's going to offer me really big benefits in terms of uh, injury and biomechanical outcomes. Now, how I've found that you can change step width quite well is um, actually through subtly changing someone's cadence. So even if you increase the cadence by less than 5%, what can happen is you can get a, a, a concurrent change in their step width. And really why I think this happens is because it changes the muscle activity around the, the hip muscles. So as you then bring the leg back down underneath the body, the hip muscles will actually start to, to put that pelvis and that foot position in a more, uh, well, into a wider position in that initial contact. So rather than go and manipulate step with my first go-to is actually think, can I change the rotation of that pelvis by using um, step rate instead, and even just subtle changes to the step rate? Cool. And um, I, I think that makes a ton of sense. If there's, I think also if you're increasing your cadence and you're trying to tick the legs over quicker, it takes more time to reach across to the other side and um, have that kind of crossover step pattern. Whereas if you're trying to to tick them over quicker, you're not going to have any other option but to contact. Um, yeah, in the I guess less of a, a narrow step width and yeah, yeah. Uh, I think what just, you what, I think what you find on that is like when when people have this narrow crossover, often they have almost like a lopy stride. So they reach out too far. But what you'll notice is that that pelvis on the lead leg tends to rotate really far towards that leg. We do this when we walk really well, but from a running perspective, we shouldn't rotate our pelvis too much. So because the pelvis rotates, then you're automatically in quite a narrow position. So, you know, if you did this in standing, just reach your leg out and rotate that pelvis towards that front leg you find that that step width is really narrow. So if you do it, focus on, you know, bringing the leg back down quicker and changing that step rate, the, the muscles will bring that pelvis back into that neutral position, which we want from running. So it just automatically gives you that wider step width. Yeah. Uh, and I do agree with you, what you said before, when you tell someone to widen their step width, I, I almost, almost every runner I say, that too uh will naturally like overcorrect and they're just like running like side shifting side to side and it's just a crazy um overcorrection and so 
um, when I do say it to people, I'm like, it is the most subtle difference. Um, I want you just to change it by like an inch or two. Um, please don't, because everyone seems to be jumping on the moon after that. And like, you know, almost like ice skating, you know, they go from side to side. Um, I'm curious, I didn't have this written down, but um, while you're just talking about strength and that around the hips, from my understanding, it seems that someone, if someone was to have a hip drop or like their, their knees are cutting in and brushing against each other, it seems like strength doesn't do a whole lot to change their biomechanics once they get back to actually running. And if someone is injured, let's just say they have knee pain or hip pain and we take them um, off the treadmill, we strengthen them up, we put them back on the treadmill, they feel a lot better because what they're doing is increasing the muscle capacity rather than actually changing biomechanics. Is that, um, would I be saying that correct? Or do you have a, another view? So uh, I have mixed views on that. So th the first one is generally with a lot of strengthening that we do from a physio perspective is, yeah, you're right. We don't necessarily change the biomechanics of someone. All we do is get the, the, the tissue structures more robust to, um, to cope with um, what you're going to do to it. What I always say to people is like, we're going to make you so strong you can just run through brick walls because effectively that's what we are generally doing with a lot of strengthening. However, you know, science would say that if we change strength or we just look at strength, it doesn't necessarily relate to someone's biomechanics, which is true, but their relationships and how strength influences mechanics is a lot more complex than simply saying A plus B equals C. Strength is one aspect that I feel is necessary for you to be able to produce a movement. If you don't have the baseline strength qualities, I can't expect you to then use that muscle group to perform a function when you go out to run. Because at the end of the day, you need strength to overcome the forces that are applied to the body. So a minimum amount of strength is necessary. But what we're finding and some of our research is currently trying to look at these complex patterns between how strength and biomechanics interrelate. And what you really find is that there's huge amounts of um, varying influences that can make this like picture appear. So a, a nice example here would be if somebody has got a really weak hip that might not change their hip mechanics because what they might have gone out and done is self-optimize their step rate and really increase the cadence. So now the strength requirements that they need around that hip are lower and they can function perfectly fine. So your strength and your naturally adapted cadence are two factors that might influence the overall outcome. So, you know, to avoid going into much more complex um, discussions on that, I think a minimum strength is required, but it's, amongst a whole to a topic of or amongst this multiple interactions between different aspects that then influences the biomechanics that are output. And I think the listeners, um, if they've listened to previous episodes of this podcast, um, they should have been drilled in the message time and time again, the strength is very important for runners and it's a, a crucial piece. Um, so if I could try and uh, summarize what you were just saying, so strength is definitely important, but, might not might not necessarily be for the goal of changing biomechanics but what you're doing is you're just overall improving the quality of how your muscles are firing and how the neurons are firing just to create that that better quality of running yeah exactly you're making the tissues 
more able to cope with running and give them the ability to actually perform the task better. Yeah, cool. As we come to a close, um, I did want to touch on just uh, hopefully you can summarize in a nice, neat little way (laughs) when it comes to uh, running technique. Is there any uh, changes or is there any link or correlation to injury rates when it comes to um, someone's overall biomechanics? Yeah. So again, this is like quite a debated one, but yes, there are certain biomechanics such as your overstride, increased braking, pelvis drop and hip cutting across the body that are linked to future injury development. Um, This is very much an emerging area. So there's a lot of associations where injured runners look like this. So it might mean that actually they run a bit different because they're injured. But there are some evidence that's starting to link um, certain biomechanical patterns to injury. But as I say, the difficulty in this is because your biomechanics are going to interact with what you do from a training perspective. It's part of this whole jigsaw puzzle. You don't necessarily get, you don't get injured because just one piece of that puzzle isn't there. It's usually because there's multiple different pieces like biomechanics plus a muscle muscles are poorly conditioned and not strong enough to cope with the stress. Plus a you've done too much too soon perspective. Um, so yeah, it does link to it, but it's usually because there's other contributors alongside so it's not necessary for you to just change biomechanics you could train smarter build tissue qualities first uh, for example which is why it's been so hard for science and research to try and make this correlation because injuries aren't just as simple as um you know changing biomechanics or a certain way that you're running it's just the there's so many different factors that come into it. Um, so the three that you had there was um, a hip drop. So if you're contacting on the ground with your right foot, what you're saying is the left side, the left hip is um, getting closer to the ground and that kind of, um, like you said, that shelf kind of tilting. Um, the hip cutting across, so those knees rubbing together, you could say, and then that overstride where someone's reaching too far forward uh, when they make that initial contact and that, in a sense, would create create more breaking force is that right yeah that's perfect those are the the key spot on things that you know there's emerging evidence that's linking that to future injury development great and how about performance uh so from a performance perspective those what same things are linked to uh reduced performance i think your biggest one is going to be the overstride um because if you spend more time breaking you've got to regenerate that force to go forward um And other than that, from a performance perspective, it's trying to avoid sinking too much on the ground. Um, So, you know, from a scientific perspective, we call this lower limb stiffness. And what we find is those um, high performance runners, they are what we'd say is in inverted commas, stiffer as they hit the ground. But effectively what that means is they don't sink with each stride and they're better able to apply force into the ground and move into the next step. And I view that as your suspension spring as you run. You, you, want, you don't want too soft of a suspension because that's just going to cost you too much energy. But at the same time, you don't want it to be too firm. You want to get a nice um, spring as you move into each step where you, you just you don't sink too much. You spend less time on the ground. Well said. And I think it's um, if someone can kind of relate it to efficiency, like if you're slopping down onto the ground and there's more movement from contact, um, yeah, making um, a higher 
or a lower center of gravity move up and down. Whereas if you're creating a stiffer leg, then you're not necessarily needing to absorb a lot of that load and then release a lot of that load. It's a lot more of an efficient process. And what I like to do when I'm looking at runners is get them hopping on one side, one after the other and see if they like maybe 10 hops on the left side, then 10 hops on the right side and just see how efficiently they can spring up and try and get them to do it quite quickly with quite a high cadence or high tempo and um, can depict really well whether someone can create that stiffness. And so that's, that's also another test that someone could do quite nicely at home and can kind of be um, a correlation with strength, would you say, if someone is really struggling to um, create that leg stiffness, um, strength might just be, um, might help them. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way of, uh, of testing it. And definitely there's a huge strength component there. The stronger your muscle tissues are and the more force they can generate, the more easily they can resist that sinking as you hit the ground and create this stiffness. And I think Rich Blygrove, uh, he, he uh, published a, a couple of years ago now a really nice review on whether strength can improve performance. And actually through strength training alone, you could get up to like an 8% improvement in, in running economy. Um, so yeah, and, and this was fundamentally w one of the reasons of why that would happen is more muscle force means you can apply that stiffness and keep your spring moving efficiently going forward. Yeah, he's a champion when it comes to strength and performance for runners. And I did interview him um, earlier in the, when this podcast very first started. So if someone doesn't or hasn't listened to that episode, I think it's around 14 or 15, uh, episode 14 or 15. So um, really, he does really well illustrating like what sort of strengthening exercises, like how to um, prioritize like dosages, how to structure it into your weekly running routine, that sort of thing. And obviously um, understanding the benefits of strength for runners. Um, so really good if you haven't listened to that one yet. Um, great. I think we will finish up there, Chris. Is there any other take-home messages or anything that we haven't really come across um, in this chat today that uh, you want the listeners to, to um, take away? Well, I think my, my summary key messages would be um, like look for the obvious don't change things unless it's absolutely staring you in the face. Um, don't worry about foot pronation uh, too much. And don't think on, and also a real key one that we didn't touch on is don't worry about changing foot strike patterns, you know, rear foot, forefoot, it doesn't matter how you land. But what I would say is if you, if you go around and start messing with foot strike patterns, you are more likely to get injured. Um, so those would be my, my three take homes. Um, and I think finally, if in doubt and, you know, if you are, have any more questions or concerned about your running form and whether or not that's causing running injuries, I really seek advice from a specialist running physio who understands the sport. And, um, you know, obviously people like Brody and myself um, really do understand how to fit this into the, that puzzle and hopefully to give you more practical advice. Yeah, great. And when it does come to things like running technique, um, like you said, focus on the obvious, but also focus on, is it a training error? Like make sure like the client that you um, illustrated before and they're convinced it's a, a biomechanics issue. Um, maybe just uh, have a look at what you've done in the last couple of weeks, have a look at your training schedule, have a look to see if there might've been an overload because that could be the answer because 
that's a very empowering kind of approach to your recovery. But if someone, if you go to a physio who says, oh, your glutes aren't firing, your hips are dropping, you're doing all this, um, you're pronating, your feet are weak, it can be very disempowering and very um, like anxiety driven to receive that kind of information, which isn't really helpful as a, if you want to um, have a proactive recovery. So make sure that you're educated on the right type of things. Make sure you're listening to, to Chris and myself. Um, with that said, is there anywhere someone can go who loves, loves your stuff, loves the, the conversation and wants to find out more about you or learn more about what you're working on? Um, yeah. So, you know, there's a couple of different methods. You can contact myself via our, um, our sort of physiotherapy clinic website, which is extramilehealth.com. Um, we put our research articles on there and it's a nice just way of getting in directly in touch with myself or seeing what services we offer. Or um, uh, I'm generally pretty active on Twitter. So you could follow me at Chris Brammer. Um, and hopefully you, you like running and you like biomechanics because that's generally a lot of what I talk about. But yeah, those are the two methods why if you want to um, find out more or get in touch, feel free. Fantastic. And I know we didn't touch based on a lot of foot strike patterns and like it's overall importance, but um, if you're a loyal listener and listen to other episodes, you'll um, by all means, you'll know uh, the the right answer for that one. So um, Chris, thanks for taking the time to come on and share your wisdom. I actually learned a whole bunch, which is really, really cool. And um, hopefully the, the runners out there um, took away a lot as well. So once again, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Running Smarter Podcast. I hope you can see the impact this content will have on your future running. If you want to continue expanding your knowledge, please subscribe to the podcast and keep listening. If you want to learn quicker, jump into the Facebook group titled Become a Smarter Runner. If you want tailored education and physio rehab, you can personally work with me at breakthroughrunning.physio. Thank you so much once again. And remember, knowledge is power.